0: Welcome to Conversations with Z and Vindesh, a weekly dialogue that explores common life challenges and offers practical solutions. Learn more at the dispassionateobserver.com. That's T H E D I S P A S S I O N A T E O B S E R V E R.com. Welcome, everyone, to Conversations with Z and Vindesh, and today's topic is take a deep breath. We have conversations, and it's crazy what you hear sometimes and the way that people sound. They equate pretty ordinary situations with life or death. So it could be something like, oh, my God, I can't find my keys, or I'm stuck in traffic. I'm going to be late. And we listen sometimes, and just listening to these conversations, your heart starts pounding, your pulse increases. And in the first few moments of a conversation like that, my instinct is always, who just died? Who are we going to have to bury? And let me start thinking about funeral arrangements. And then we hear a little more of the conversation, and I find, okay, no one died but the person I'm talking to received the wrong package from Amazon and now they got to call customer service and sort this out. So at some level, this has become normalized. At another level, this is absolutely insane. Z, how did we get to this point? And why are we in a state where we're getting so worked up over very ordinary things?
1: Yeah, Van, this sense of urgency, this um, is, is a kind of a new drug in a sense. Uh People become addicted to that drug. uh Everything becomes a crisis. Your order at the restaurant um you name things that are have not even- arisen to the level of mundane, and we're in crises over them we, because we expect for one that everything in our life should be perfect though we don't know what perfect is. We know that whatever's going on isn't perfect, so we need to make adjustments and tweaks. And that requires using other people or involving other people to perfect our sense
2: that our life is imperfect. Uh,
1: If anything goes wrong with that, you're in a state of disaster. We talked a few times ago about the bitter medicine, and we talked about that endless pursuit of comfort. And what we said there is that the endless pursuit of comfort makes comfort more elusive. Less attainable. And so now that people are constantly looking for this unattainable thing, they tend to be in a constant state of urgency and it has become normalized.
0: So I think what you're saying is spot on that culturally we've gotten to a point where we think that a good life is a life where everything goes our way or we never feel any pain or feel any disappointment. And this is a false narrative. This is something that obviously is going to make us miserable because we're not the center of the universe. The world doesn't exist to serve us. Other people have their own concerns. And we've talked about this in so many forms. Even if you go back to the first piece we did on entitlement, believing that you are entitled to something or entitled to certain treatment or certain outcomes is ultimately going to leave you disappointed and it's going to make you miserable. And what's interesting is that there are these mental costs, so we're not happy when we're in this state of panic, we're not in a calm state of mind, we're feeling like we're going from crisis to crisis, but there are also pretty big health consequences. And I see this sometimes when I talk to people, and it's sad because they're almost under so much anxiety that they look like they're going to crack. And Z, it feels like they're putting on a really good smile. They're putting their best foot forward. They're talking about how they really hope that things work out. And you almost sense a quiet desperation underneath. Like people are barely holding life together. On the one hand, they want to project this image of confidence. They want to project this image that everything is going their way and they're optimistic. And on the other hand, they're so terrified that things aren't going to work out that they're just sitting on this sea of dread so talk about that for a second if we're always in this state where we're living in fear and we're living in dread and honestly we can barely hold it together what is that doing to our physical health
1: then we uh, touched on this when we talked about primalism we can't relate to others because we are so concerned about our own survival. So there becomes the decline of empathy and compassion, uh, the dawn of of severe mental health issues. The body responds by releasing stress hormones like adrenaline and cortisol. We we crank these out all the time. There's never a time when we're not pumping out these high dosages of these fight-or-flight endorphins and so forth. And hormones, eventually we run out of those, and we're running then at a deficit. So it's going to require us to consume muscle and bone and blood material to maintain this hyper diligence. That cortisolemia we develop leads to weight gain, high blood pressure, uh, variable heart rate. Uh, in addition to the degeneration of the brain itself, the losing of your mind, the immune system shutting down, all because we have. Told that this this lie has become a truth that we're in constant threat, and it, it, there's no way to feel good being in that state. We just don't know. Oftentimes, we're there because so many people we're around are like that. It's just kind of like if you you're in a you're in a place where the most of the people around you have a disease. You don't know your disease. You follow me, Vin?
0: Yeah, Z, 100%. We've talked about this concept before in the normalization of dysfunction, that these conditions just become normalized. Everyone else is doing the same thing, and we don't even realize there is a problem. So mentally, we're in a bad state because we don't feel calm. Physically, we're in a bad state. We have cortisol going through our bodies all the time. And you mentioned one other thing, which I think is really interesting. You use the word insular. So when we're in this state where we feel like we're under attack and we're dealing with a threat, naturally, our body and our mind is going to shift to survival mode. We're going to be more concerned about ourselves than anyone else. And this means we can't relate to other people. So it's going to undermine the quality of the relationships that we have. And I've seen this a number of times. There are times when I'm sitting next to someone or talking to someone, and they're so preoccupied with multitasking. so engaged in their phone or they're thinking about what's going to happen during the week with their family or with their job and there's so much stress that they can't stay present their mind is just going to the future that it's almost like there's a physical barrier that goes up between me and that person and it's not possible to relate to them it's not possible to engage with them it's not a lot of fun and if you take it one step further If you do choose to be around people like that, the anxiety, to the extent that they do engage, becomes contagious. If you hear someone who's talking in a very panicky state of voice, you're immediately going to try and figure out what's wrong. What is the threat that this person is getting so worked up about? So it's going to put you in an anxious state as well. And ultimately, you're not going to want to be a part of that person's world. Z, based on your experience, can you give some examples or share some insight into how this state of panic impacts relationships?
1: Well there are there are so many ways that we can invite disease into our life, <clears throat> and that disease of panic, crises, shrill voice it undermines the threads that weave a relationship together. You have people that are bound together because they've gone through one crisis after another. And either one or both or whoever participated in the relationship are so used to crises, when there's no crises, they create one. It's not unlike people who have Munchausen's disease, where they create some crisis so people will run to their aid, where they inflict a crisis upon someone else for sympathy. So we're not really far from that. And when it comes to healthy relationships, Those are things you want to think about, is that do you want to keep your beloved in a constant state of edginess, and that edginess takes over intimacy. That edginess prioritizes survival and edginess over uh, warmth, comfort, uh, mutually beneficial intimacy. It overwhelms all that. You just lose it all. so I, I talk to people on a regular basis who they complain that their partner doesn't listen to them anymore. And as we get into the deeper into the conversation, you realize that they constantly discuss one urgent thing or one crisis after another where even as I work with them, I don't really want to listen to them anymore. I want to prescribe them something or suggest that they go see someone else because I'm at a point where just listening to them. Is starting to undermine my immune system, just simply protecting myself from an onslaught of panic and crises. And I'll go on to say that this syndrome, this cry wolf syndrome, is definitely something that not only undermines the individual's health, but it undermines your social health. And as you said, contagious. If people know you're walking around with a contagious disease they're not that enthusiastic about being around you then. This crisis panic, one thing after another is, uh, is, is basically like cyber Ebola.
2: Who wants that?
0: I think that there's a really insightful point that you brought up, which I wanna hit on for a second, which is when we're dealing with people who are always in a state of panic, we are always crying wolf. We just don't have the capacity to pay attention. We can't pay attention because we don't want to be anxious all the time. It's a survival mechanism. We're protecting ourselves. And it's interesting because a lot of the communication problems that come up, if you think about couples who say, oh, he doesn't listen to me or she's not listening to what I'm saying, maybe they want to listen, but they can't listen. Maybe they've heard you cry wolf so many times over the fact that the restaurant has messed up the order or there is some incorrect charge in your credit card statement, that you just can't deal with that. It's too much of a drain of your energy, of your spirit. It's too much of you being in this heightened state of panic, just listening to the sound of someone else's voice. Z, comment on that for a second. You'd mentioned that the tone of voice itself, if you're talking to someone In a staccato like way, where you're rushing to get the words out, or you've got a very shrill voice, that there's something in us which just shuts down and actually isn't able to listen to what the other person is saying.
1: Yeah, Vin, as we've evolved as a species, tones and sounds um, alert us to the different state of our environment. A mother can tell, or a parent can tell, the cry of their child whether that child is in great distress or is simply calling for attention. Are they injured and hurt, or are they annoyed and hungry? Then as we evolve, we can listen to a friend over the phone, a loved one, and we can tell by the hesitancy in their voice, the cracking of the voice, whether something is wrong or not. We know that when you are with someone and You're in a quiet, intimate moment. The voice, the tone of the voice drops. It's smoother. It's comforting. It's breathy. And that drops your guards. The opposite, the shrill voice raises your guards. Just like the device they put on the phone to warn you that someone is uh, uh, being uh, sought after by law enforcement. There's these shrill alarms. They used to have the uh, nuclear raid test and there's a shrill alarm and that was to make you uncomfortable and alert you even dogs raise their ear and try and hide from that sound and so if you have someone in your voice who has this kind of shrill high-pitched howl uh they're alerting you that there's some great suffering that's imminent then when you find out it's not because that is such an unhealthy sound your brain starts to shut down and filter that particular frequency of voice out. So you find yourself in a situation with your partner where people are not listening because it's unhealthy to even listen because you have hit that alert button so many times that it makes it inefficient. So real alerts you no longer hear. Like the children's story, the boy who cried wolf. After some point, no one listened to him. And, of course, he was inevitably consumed by the wolf. The wolf that we're letting in are the things that destroy our life when we do that. The real wolf isn't there, so we've made up these wolves. Eventually, your conversation is is very guarded. You know that person's calling you, and you dread hearing from them. Or you immediately want to know, without any small talk, are the children alive or dead? Has the world ended? Has an asteroid hit our world and the tsunami is just about upon us? So let's get that out of the way before we even talk about the weather. The reason we end up in that state is because that person now has marked your hearing, your, your, your auditory cortex, with this is a dreadful person. This is the bearer of bad news. And if that bear of bad news happens to be a loved one or, or, God forbid, your partner, just imagine what that's doing to your relationship. Your blood pressure goes up. Your heart rate varies. Your cortisol dumps. All wondering what this person will say. That probably isn't your ideal mate or partner at that moment. So we have to be very careful when we cry and howl wolf. Uh, We have to be very careful at what those are. A simple solution that, that I put forth with people who have been struggling with this for a while is to color code the crises metric in your life and start with the most horrific thing in your life you could imagine going on. And that represents code red. And code red is the panic, the crises world-ending mode. And then work your way backwards from code red all the way to a nice, cool code yellow, so to say. And say, what are the things that are manageable? They're not that big of a deal. Uh, Most things really aren't that big of a deal. Most things are inconveniences. uh, And the more comfort you seek in your life the more you want to immediately remedy discomfort the more you want to edit the world to shape your needs and that puts you in a much more uh, fragile position so you can enter crises much more readily when you've been striving to edit the world to fit your whims and, and 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 needs of the moment so to undo that you want to think about what Things in my life would really upset my life and destroy my world. Those are the priorities. Below that, there are things you tend to as part of the normal goings-on of the day. You follow me, Vin?
0: Yeah, Z, it's funny. It reminds me of an experience I went through maybe six or seven years ago. I had to get my appendix out. So I woke up one day. I had a lot of pain. It just got worse and worse, and my wife, who's a doctor, came back at the end of the day and saw me, and she was pretty sure she knew what was going on, so she took me to the emergency room, and being a doctor, she knows how to work the system, so they had me fill out a form, and part of the form was, on a scale of 1 to 10, what is your pain level? So I think I put somewhere around a 6 or 7. I mean, I felt really bad, but to me, a 10 is, you've been shot in the head or you're, someone's poured gasoline on you, and you're on fire, and you got to put that fire out. But she looked at this, and she said, a 6 or a 7, this is ridiculous. No one's going to take you seriously. 10, 10, 10. So we marked everything 10. And that's really just how we've been conditioned. That's how our society operates. We treat everything at the maximal level, and we really have to deprogram ourselves and decondition ourselves. And I think what you're saying is one way to do that. Where if we start with the worst case scenario and we color code that as a red, that gives us some perspective and some marker to say, okay, maybe things aren't going my way, but it's really not that big of a deal. And it's an inconvenience. It's not something that's fundamentally going to destroy me. One of the things, Z, I want to talk to you about is the breath. Because when we get into the state of panic, it impacts our breathing. Breathing becomes shallow. And just by controlling the breathing, a lot of times we can reduce the anxiety. So if we go into the state of deep breathing, of pausing, of increasing the space between our thoughts and our words, we get our body back in check. What is your advice around the breath? How can we use that so that we can function in more of a calm state of mind?
1: Well, we've covered some of this in the Qigong, and I, I, I won't get into that here. But maybe at some other point we could get into that. And what I share with people is you don't have to take a extensive course in, course in breathology. Understand what's happening when the voice is strained. Our voice is a construct of basically breath moving through our vocal cortex, creating certain vibrations that not only
2: express words and sentences, but also the
1: temper and tone of the moment, urgency, calm, how serious something is, Um, depth. And it's one of those things that we miss when we text each other. We don't really get a sense of the person's humanity. But we've evolved to listen for breath patterns. So, part of that breath patterning is the lack of oxygen, the gasping for air, the pauses in the breath, uh hyperventilating uh and also the range, the octave level. So when we get to higher octaves, uh we can sense panic, so the shrill voice is the siren, oh no, oh no, dread, dread, the smoother. Presentation of the voice is comfort, soothing, uh, rock a baby, hello, lover, or whatever it is. The other is run, get out of the way, imminent death. So you start thinking about how you, you your breath is creating that. And a simple tool, in addition to creating a metric of crises in your life, from the worst case to the best case thing, is pausing. So if something is going on and you feel that is causing throat tension, take a break. You look at the clock and you realize that you're
2: going to be late instead of clutching.
1: Accept that there's nothing you can do about time. Take a lesson and mark that for the future. Maybe prepare better next time. Take a deep breath. Go about your business. Do the best you can with what's in front of you. And take the moment of stress that was invited into your life as a learning opportunity to try different techniques, not
2: filling your schedule, not getting used to
1: the last minute shock of adrenaline that gets you going and also the general priorities in your life what what again we we talked about this what's important what's really important and you will find that there's not really that many things that are that
2: important you'll also be able to
1: pause the breath clearing the mind and you see how things are related that at the restaurant the waiter had no personal grudge against you because the order was a bit off. Or that panicked person in traffic that is going insane and beating their wheel and and trying to get ahead of you has no consciousness of you. Their life is in disarray. And you, by taking breath, have a chance to join them in that disarray or let them go about their life and you go about yours. So a simple technique is the pausing.
2: The pausing of all action, and learning the narratives. Um, I just need a moment.
1: I'll be right with you. Those sorts of things you could say that allow you to pause and also pause the event that you're involved in. Um, Turning away from urgent crises geared people. Uh, This is a contagious disease. Because they will be panicked and upset and in a hurry. And it will cause you to be panicked and upset in a hurry. Uh, If somebody is running late and they're having some sort of uh, hangry, glycemic food craving and they're yelling and screaming, tell them, hey, go on without me. I'll join you later. Because don't get caught up in that. If somebody is complaining about how everything isn't working out in their life, Kindly say, oh, something just came up and I have to go. So that you don't get caught up in that. Then you're holding your breath. You're going into oxygen deprivation and you're introducing then real crises into your health. So again, uh, managing boundaries, very important when it comes to dealing with people of that temperament. But also in your own life, being aware of the things that are triggering you. To behave, and though it's normal, it is not healthy, nor is it holistic, nor is it sustainable.
0: Maybe we can take this time and just summarize the conversation because we've covered a lot of ground. It's been interesting when I think about our discussion, we've touched on so many of the topics that we've covered in the past. So we've touched on entitlement and feeling entitled is a reason why we get into this state of panic. We've talked about primalism and the primal responses that this triggers. We've talked about concepts like, is it worth it? And just asking, what difference does it really make if we're stuck in traffic? Or if the waiter screws up our order, how does this impact our life? So I think just creating a greater awareness of our tendency to get into this panic state is always the first step towards remedy. And it can help us physically, it can help us mentally. As we've talked about, it can really help us sometimes in relationships. So take that deep breath. Learn to discriminate between things that are actually panic-inducing, that are actual crises, and things that are more just inconveniences. And if we have the wisdom to distinguish between the two, we can use the pause, we can use the deep breath to pull back, calm ourselves down, and flow through life more easily. So Z, any final thoughts?
2: Well, all I can say
1: is that is that the pause, the breath, and creating the diagram or yantra of your life of what's important, uh, prioritizing crises, you'll find that there are very few actual crises in your life that are going to rip your children away from you or debilitate you in some way devastate your life there's not a lot of things so a lot of the panic and dread is something that we're creating we're inviting in we're inviting the real wolf into our life while we're crying wolf to gain attention
0: if you enjoyed the show please consider leaving a review on podbean itunes or your favorite podcasting app. Every five-star review allows us to share more unique and insightful content. Learn more at thedispassionateobserver.com. Thanks for listening, and please tune in again next week. Peace.